0: so welcome everyone to the next episode of our coffee breakdown podcast today we have as our guest uh, simon van Mulders. he did his phd thesis at epfl on model-based optimization of a tokamak and he's currently at ETER working on state estimation so welcome simon to the podcast hello adam thanks for inviting me yeah no problem um, and i think those beginning few words were a bit of a mouthful for our listeners. So we'll slowly get through all of it, hopefully during this discussion. Um, but the first question to you is, uh, well, why do we need to optimize our Tokamak and what are we exactly optimizing?
1: Okay, yeah. So let's try to start from from the basics of, of what we are trying to do here. So we are working with Tokamaks in which we confine a plasma with the aim of achieving nuclear fusion and in the end, achieving net energy production for like um, from these fusion reactions which happen in the plasma. So when we try to formulate this as an optimization problem, um, we need a cost function and a constraint function of like cost function, like what it is we're optimizing. And we can say we want to optimize the performance, but how do we uh, describe this performance? In the case of, of uh, fusion energy production, what we want to optimize inside the plasma really is a triple product of three variables. This is a triple product of the density of the plasma, the temperature of the plasma, and the confinement time. Confinement time is basically a metric of the how well the plasma is be, behaving as a thermal insulator. And so the, the better we can, we can confine the heat inside the plasma, um, the more um, the more fusion energy production we can achieve Um, another thing we can optimize is the pulse duration so um, for the magnetic um, geometry that we need inside the tokamak we need actually to run um, a plasma current through the plasma itself so the the plasma will be carrying a current And this current has to be maintained throughout the entire pulse duration. And um, the way this is basically done is by a transformer effect. So in in the middle of, so the tokamak is like donut shape, the in in which the plasma is is basically floating. And in the center of the tokamak, there is a central solenoid in which a, a current in this coil is ramped up and the changing magnetic flux in time Uh, induces a current inside the plasma. Now, um, this current inside the plasma can also be generated by alternative mechanisms. One of them is um, auxiliary current drive. So we can use the the same kind of devices that we use to heat the plasma uh, can also be used to drive current in the plasma. But of course, this is expensive because we want to Inject as much um, as little power as possible in in, in able to um, to to be able to achieve a net fusion gain, and so um, there is an, an an extra mechanism that we get basically for free, which is a self-generated current inside the plasma called bootstrap current, and um, this bootstrap current, um, which is basically uh, present whenever we have a pressure gradient. Uh, is something we want to maximize so this is another performance metric on top of the of the earlier ones i i, I mentioned so to basically um, to enable us to extend the pulse duration uh, as as long as possible so that's um, examples of, of what we can be optimizing so the cost functions but at the same time we need to take some constraints into account so uh, basically we need to avoid disruptions disruption is is like a sudden uh, loss of of the of the energy and of the current inside the plasma. So basically, you can imagine the plasma bumping into the wall, and because of the extreme um, the extreme um, temperatures and the extreme um, energy content of of the plasma, this is of course um, a very uh, bad event that we have to avoid for sure. Once we are talking about uh, Um, a reactor where we want a reliable operation, where we don't want to destroy the reactor wall, obviously. Um, And other constraints are are just uh, technical limits. Uh, We have limits, for example, on the power supplies to our coils, which limit how fast we can ramp up a current in the central solenoid or in um, any of the other coils that are used to shape the plasma, um, things like this. So that's the basic the basic framework uh, of of optimization for for um, for tokamak.
0: Yeah, great. And it seems that there's a lot of factors that you have to take into account in this optimization. It seems that from a cost perspective, all your parameters are global parameters. They're sort of just numbers that represent the plasma as a whole. And I'm curious how well you can describe a plasma using those numbers? Is it, is it sufficient or are there many, many solutions that give effectively the same set of numbers, right?
1: Yeah, so um, the answer to this, this question is no, it's not sufficient. You cannot just describe the plasma with a, a number of bulk parameters. You need to look into the distribution of, of quantities inside the plasma. Um, I can give an example of this, which is very important in the context of a tokamak, which is the safety factor. Um, So the safety factor is is basically related to the distribution of the plasma current inside the plasma. Um, And it's also um, a metric for the local uh, pitch angle of the magnetic field. So it's basically the, the, it, it gives a metric for how much Poloidal fields, so so field in the poloidal direction you have with respect to uh, magnetic field in the toroidal direction, which is in the, uh, along the axis of the donut, let's say. And so this safety factor, so first of all, why is it called safety factor? It's called safety factor because the value of this um, safety factor profile or Q profile at the edge of the plasma has to be maintained high enough usually above, um, usually at least above three. Um, and and um, the reason for this is that the, the safety factor by the edges is, is basically inversely proportional to the total plasma current um, inside the plasma. And for a given magnetic field, for a given toroidal magnetic field, we can increase the plasma current only up to a certain value. If you would increase it further than that, we get what we call uh, an external kink instability, and basically the plasma will kink out and 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 uh, and disrupt. So that's the why in the early years of tokamak research, people call this safety factor. But it turns out that this uh, safety factor profile has many more um, constraints linked to it, and um, one of them is what we called uh, tearing modes or neoclassical tearing modes. I will not go into the details of the the physics, but basically under normal operation in a tokamak, you have a set of nested flux surfaces. So if you have the magnetic axis in the center where your temperature is highest, and then it's it's surrounded, it's like an onion, surrounded by sets of magnetic flux surfaces on which the magnetic flux is constant. That's why they are called like this. And uh, on these flux surfaces, you also have constant uh, temperature and, and, and density. And basically, when you get a tearing mode, um, this um, this nested geometry is broken. And because of local locally breaking this uh, nested geometry, you get a, a larger um, a larger transport transport of heat. So you get a local flattening in your temperature profile, and this is very bad for performance. Even worse, it can trigger uh, disruption. And now I come to the link with the safety factor profile. The conditions under which you can uh, trigger such a tearing mode are often linked to the safety factor profile. First of all, they appear at rational surfaces of of this Q profile, Q equals 2, Q equals 1.5, and so one thing we can introduce as a constraint in our optimization is the local conditions at these rational surfaces as to avoid these steering modes. Um, that's one example. Another example is um, is linked to the uh, control of the position of the plasma. So basically, um, when we start to elongate the shape of a plasma, the vertical position of the plasma can become become unstable, or actually, by definition, becomes unstable and requires control, uh, real-time control with the poloidal field coils. Now, uh, this has been done since since the early days of of tokamak research. But the catch is that if the if the current density inside the plasma becomes too peaked, so if there's too little current by the edge of the plasma it becomes very hard to control the, the position of the plasma. So this is an, another example where the current distribution, so a distributed quantity, um, is um, important uh, for for taking into account the constraints on, on operations.
0: Yeah, that's that's actually very interesting because then in the sense of not just the optimization part, but the estimation of the state, you need to have a lot of, diagnostics to in order to figure out, you know, well, what exactly is this distribution inside this plasma? um, And I imagine that's, that's not always very straightforward to get from a diagnostic. So how do you how do you balance that what you can measure versus what you need to know?
1: Yeah, so um, as you can imagine, uh, a plasma is a is a challenging environment to make to make measurements. So um. Of course, it's it's uh, you can make very little me- measurements inside the plasma itself, and so most of the measurements rely on um, um, on like what can be seen like from from around the the vacuum vessel, let's say. So, for example, to measure temperature, you can like um, shoot a laser through the plasma and based on the scattered light uh, get estimates of the temperature. Now for the Q profile, or the safety factor profile, or plasma current distribution—these quantities are all like closely related uh, to each other. Um, you are actually um, what you can do is look at the um, you, have, you have a set of magnetic probes about around uh, a tokamak, which measure the just outside of the, or inside the vacuum vessel, the the local values of the of the magnetic field. And by um, combining these measurements and combining them um, with, a, with a model of the model of the force balance inside the plasma, you can basically solve um, a least square fit of how, um, which distribu- which geometry, which magnetic geometry of my plasma that is a solution of this um, pressure balance Best fits the magnetic measurements that I observe. Um, but even doing this, um, it is not a- obvious to get a good estimate of this Q profile because um, the plasma shields basically the internal distribution of plasma current from the the magnetic probes that are far away from the plasma. Mm-hmm. They are they have only little sensitivity to what is happening deep inside the plasma. So there are many solutions of the current distribution there that would fit the same measurements and fit this pressure balance equation.
0: And right. So, yeah. So even in that case where you have sort of in some measurements to kind of guide you towards some constraints for the plasma state, um, one, it's clear to me that you need some sort of model in order to estimate well what the what positive state it could be in but even then the result of the model is just a solution from a family of solutions is what exactly. you're saying okay and that's very interesting because then how like in the essence of i suppose your work where you then use this combination of measurements and model predictions to do optimization um how does that play out right like how, how do you account for these this family of solutions
1: yeah so so one thing we can do here is so when when the measurements are are not enough to properly constrain the solution of what we want to observe we can add extra models to to the um, to the reconstruction problem, so basically what we can do is include uh, a model for current diffusion, um, and combine in a way the the modeling and the measurements into a best, op- a, best a best estimate for the plasma state. Um, this can be done with a with a technique that is called Kalman filtering. And um, so basically, the idea is that you, um, you so you have a, a model for for the time dynamics, which can be nonlinear. In the in the case it's nonlinear, it's called an extended Kalman filter. But the principle is is basically the same. So you have a model for the time dynamics, and you assume um, that um, you have some uncertainty in your model, and this um, this is uh, quantified with the with the uh, process noise covariance matrix, it's a difficult word. but basically means you have some noise that is added to your state while you evolve your state in your model. and uh, the bigger this noise is, the, le- the less you trust your model. At the same time, you have a you can have a model for your diagnostics. and um, on these measurements, you have a certain amount of measurement noise and you have a second covariance matrix there describing the noise on your measurements and basically on the by by uh, making a trade off between these two so based on on how much you trust your model versus how much you trust your measurement you can get an estimate of the plasma state that combines these two so basically you evolve the dynamics which are like a partial differential equation in, in the case of the q profile it's this uh, current diffusion equation and every time step that you evolve the model, you make a correction based on the measurements. And so in this way, in in uh, it can actually be proven that in, in, in the case of Gaussian noise, this gives you an optimal estimate at every time step of, in this
0: case, the Q profile. Wow, okay. And so then, but then this model evaluation, I mean, in the sense of online state estimation has to be incredibly mm-hmm. fast. I mean, I'm not sure if you are in the moment doing uh, work towards online estimation, but even offline, I imagine there's so much iteration and so many models you have to evaluate and a lot of computation happening that there are strict limitations on what types of models you can use um, inside such an um, algorithm. So can you speak a little bit about that? That's exactly
1: true. So, um, so this is of interest both in real time so during the plasma discharge uh, we need um, feedback controllers and and that that are aware of the of the plasma state so there we need a fast model but also even after a discharge uh, we need models that are fast enough uh, so that we can get a reconstruction in 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 uh, in a reasonable time scale like uh, to to see what to be so that we are aware what, what happened inside the plasma now for this there is a, a family of of models that uh, that are that have been derived uh, usually we call these kind of models uh, control oriented models so in the fusion community there is a whole hierarchy of models which go from very uh, computationally expensive usually the the models that dig into the turbulent transport they, they have to um, yeah, they have to model extremely complex um, phenomena, often in, in five dimensions. And, and uh, this is uh, extremely uh, computationally expensive. Like you said, for real-time purposes or even for post-discharge analysis purposes, we need faster models. Uh, so in, in my case, I, uh, during my PhD, I, I worked with a model that is called Raptor, which stands for Rapid Plasma Transport Simulator. And it basically uh, solves a set of partial differential equations for the transport of heat, uh, particles, and current density. Um, And um, to be able to be fast enough, uh, it needs to make use of reduced models for, um, on the one hand, the the, the evaluation of heat sources and current drive sources, and on the other hand, for turbulent transport, because like I said, turbulent transport models are very slow, but inside the heat diffusion equation, you need to evaluate the local level of diffusivity, which is governed by this turbulent transport. Um, And there, there are a few options that that we can use um, for for a control-oriented model. So one of them is we can use a simple model where we use basically an analytical formula of, of how is the local diffusivity dependent on global plasma parameters like temperature, Q profile, like can be non-linearly dependent on the state itself. And this model, um, we we have some tuning parameters and these we can tune against experimental data. So here you'll immediately see the lim- limitation of this. You need to have experimental data. So if you want to start optimizing scenarios of future machines, you cannot do this 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 is very interesting if you have a given scenario on a tokamak you have a lot of experimental data to train on you tune these coefficients and then you you can predict what is going to happen in the next discharge fairly well uh, a second approach is is a scaling law approach so um, this diffusivity based on measurements in many different tokamaks you can kind of extrapolate like make a like a scaling law fit and 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 then you can make some predictions. But of course, there is no guarantee that uh, this uh, scaling law will capture all the nonlinear physics that are actually going on inside the tokamak. And then there is a third uh, option that is more recent, which is uh, actually a very interesting one. So these complex um, turbulence models that are very slow, what I talked about before, uh, one can derive neural network surrogate models of these. So Basically, the idea is um, a large database is derived with like a lot of the, of the model outputs of the complex model for a lot of different inputs. And then this input-output mapping of, of the way the model predicts the turbulent transport, this is, is fitted with a neural network. And evaluating the neural network is very quick and can be used inside a real-time model. So that's the kind of tricks we use to make models fast enough so we can use them in, in real time on the on the real-time control system.
0: Well, of course, it's very nice that you mentioned the, the neural network stuff. As you know, it, well, I, I'm involved in that kind of work. Uh, so uh, indeed, that is a very interesting way to go forward in accelerating models and perhaps not even for turbulence, for, but for the other components, other models necessary for the optimization process. it could be interesting to look in that route. But I would like to just sort of ask um, from your point of view, I've it's been floated around a bit within the control groups here in, in the Netherlands, um, that sometimes it's also beneficial that these fast models have or are able to compute um their their Jacobians, like basically the derivatives, mm. right? And How does that play into the work that you're doing? Like what would it improve? Um, Does it improve anything? Is it required? And maybe what can you not do if you don't have them?
1: Yeah, that's uh, an extremely interesting question because um, it's, uh, it's very related to the work I've been doing because one of the big selling points of Raptor is that we have um, all the analytical jacobians available and this allows you to do different things so one of them is when we talk about solving an optimization problem so imagine we we formulate an optimization problem of uh, we want to like um, for example optimize the q profile uh, to have a given shape that avoids tearing modes and, and minimizes turbulent transport now when we solve this optimization problem, um, the most most efficient way of, of solving an optimization problem is when you have the the gradients of your cost and constraint functions uh, available analytically, uh, because you can think of it. You start so you have a set of optimization variables, which are the parameters you want to optimize. This can be at which location uh, you heat the plasma. This can be the value of the plasma current, whatever. So you have a set of optimization variables. And then basically, you start with an initial an initial point, so initial guess of uh, of these optimization variables. And then the optimization routine will want to make an, an update to this initial guess that gives you um, like a, a lower value of the cost function, in case you want to minimize the cost function. And so, if you have local local gradient information, basically um, you can evaluate analytically the gradient of this cost, fun- cost function and and point towards the the steepest steepest descent direction. And so, based on this information, you can like very uh, efficiently navigate this optimization space and and find the optimum. So for optimization. Purposes, this is very important, but actually also for control purposes, it can be very important. And uh, one nice example is uh, the linearization. So, the the dynamics of the of the of the plasma. So in this case, of of the temperature and, and current density evolution are un- governed by a nonlinear set of, of PDEs. Now, um, in case we Um, we want to do like real-time adjustments of of the plasma state, um, and and we want to have real-time information on the dynamics of the plasma, Um, if we have to use the fully nonlinear model of the plasma dynamics, this is going to be very slow because it's a nonlinear model is is more costly to evaluate than a linearized model. But if we can pre-compute a set of linearized models, we can use the linearized dynamics. And now I get into um, a topic, which is called model predictive control. So basically, when we are at a given state, um, which can be different from the the state we wanted to achieve um, in, in, in the plasma, we can make use of these linearized dynamics of the plasma to optimize in real time, how do we need to change the actuators so the the heating, the, whatever we are steering to steer the plasma state back to the the reference trajectory. Um, so these are two examples where uh, linearization uh, make a, uh, sorry, where uh, the analytical Jacobians make a big difference and and allow you to do very uh, cool stuff that uh, would take forever if you had to, you know, do a finite differencing to to find uh, the Jacobians.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting because the way, I guess, the physics community pretty much approaches modeling is that some of these equations or systems or systems of equations, anyway, are are so complex and nonlinear that you really cannot pull out uh, the Jacobian from them analytically. And so you're kind of stuck with... um, the requirement from a control or optimization perspective that it would be nice to have, but then from a physics perspective, it's nearly impossible to derive, right? And indeed this this sort of like neural network or even simplified model approach allows you to construct something that you can get the derivatives from. Um, And so, but in the case that you don't have these derivatives, and so you have to resort to finite differences as you've mentioned um are there limitations to that uh, what what does it prevent you from being able to do is it just a matter of now you have a less efficient computation or does it or can it actually cause whatever control or optimization algorithm to be completely off um so well of course in,
1: in in the case of of real-time control there there is a very clear um constraint in the sense you have to be fast enough to be able to like like uh, be able to do the computation in real time now if you have um if you are doing an, an optimization um um offline so not on the real-time control system in principle you have uh, it's it's just Gonna make the computation slower if you have to calculate the um, the gradient or the Jacobian um, numerically. Um, but in principle, you can still uh, you can still get to the optimized solution. I would say, um, of course, uh, it it will. Yeah, you you will need to to take uh, your your the the time st- no sorry the, the the step with which you do the differencing has to be fine enough to get a, a good uh, a good jacobian but and and your optimization will be much slower but i guess you can still achieve um, um you can still find uh, the optimum yeah
0: okay and so maybe let's go back to this concept that you put forward of model predictive control it seems to be an interesting method to sort of Address any discrepancies between either a controller or a control environment that you have made and its difference between that and an actual experiment right so are there any requirements for that model that model inside the model predictive control algorithm other than being fast right because I can imagine if it is less accurate. <laughs> the controller <laughs> that doesn't that's not very useful right
1: yeah so here we come into the 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 weak spot of 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 of, uh, of, of these models of course they are they are very fast of course this comes at a the price there's a reason why other people are using all these like super computationally expensive models uh, the, these fast models are not always uh, as accurate and we have something we can call the the model reality mismatch right so what we model in our simulation um, does not match exactly what's happening inside the plasma but often for the purpose of control we don't need to know exactly what's happening in the plasma because we use feedback control so um, feedback control means that you um, that you um, adjust your your um, your controller signal that goes to the actuator based on the measurement that you take in in, in real time. Uh, this is is nothing new. This is something that has been applied since the um, since the beginning of, of, of Tokamak. So for example, the the early examples are are like integrated uh, quantities like plasma current. So you you measure in real time the plasma current. You see it's uh, it's too low, so you have to ramp up faster in your central solenoid. It's too high, you have to ramp up slow. So this is just feedback control with a proportional gain or whatever. There you don't even need a a model. Then um, of course, what does the model, the reduced model, bring on the table? Like how does this um, change the picture? Here, um, one thing is of course this model predictive predictive control, um, and there, your question was basically how good does this model have to be? Um, often, because you you compare your your output that you get with the um, with your reference, you uh, often get away with a model that is not perfect because even i mean if the model just gives you like a direction to to push your plasma in 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 the right direction you know like it's it's this linearized dynamics um tell you how you can best use your actuators to bring you back to the state and even if it's not perfect you will be corrected by the fact that you are using these real time measurements and and adjusting for um for example in in, in the case that your your, your actuators are pushing the plasma away from what you want, you will will get a bigger offset uh, in in, in your uh, difference between the reference and and what you wanted to achieve. And and, and it will be um, able to to correct for that. A second example I I want to mention is that these models can also be used to tune our controllers. So basically, these models provide us with a digital twin of the the tokamak. which we sometimes call the flight simulator. And instead of having like this a long trial and error process where we try a controller on a plasma, then it doesn't work. We change the, the parameters a bit. We run the tokamak plasma again. This is, a, of course, this is something you can do on a tokamak on a university campus where it doesn't matter if it disrupts from time to time because the energy confined is, is, is not so huge. so You're not destroying the tokamak and stuff like this. But of course, when we go to a reactor where the stored energy is enormous. Where we, where we need to have a reliable operation, there we don't want this kind of trial and error. And there, if we have a di- digital twin, like a, a, a tokamak in numeric space, let's say, and we can train the controller on this uh, num- digital twin, we make a big gain, and we can like uh, directly get a better performance of the controller when we actually apply it in the experiment
0: okay yeah that's that's actually an interesting point as well because i mean when we do sort of the uh, sorry experimental trial and error process of course there's more being learned than just you know how to be tune this controller although that is definitely one thing that occurs it's also i suppose in some way learning well how how far off are we in terms of what we expected the plasma to do versus what it actually did. And I'm curious that inside this whole model predictive control, uh, paradigm, is there a way to get that information back out to say, "Ah, okay, here your model deviated from your experiment significantly. And then we can feed that back to, um, People who develop these models and say, "Okay, well, here here's a place, here's a plasma or a condition that you probably want to look into, uh, or or figure out how to model better."
1: Yeah, this is actually something that um, that comes back to this this process of um, of state estimation, where which which I mentioned before. So um, it's um, basically by by looking. So as I say, you you have a prediction and you correct it with the measurements. And basically, by looking into how much do I have to correct uh, from my prediction to get the, the observation, uh, this gives you a metric of how of how um, yeah how good your model is performing. And you can even uh, you can even use the the model parameters as the 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 variables that are corrected by your Um, Kalman filter procedure and and let the the state estimator make changes directly to these variables um, to see how much do I need to change them to match the observed um, plasma state evolution. And then afterwards, of course, you can see and you can compare, like, okay, how much more did I have to increase turbulent transport? Uh, How much more was the radiation from the plasma compared to what i expect like you know you can then you can compare the yeah the observed uh quantities with the predicted quantities basically uh,
0: yeah because i think there was now i'm going to say something potentially stupid but i think there was a there was someone working in the u.s at the National Nation facility or something like that, where they were looking at sort of um, pro, uh, 2D distributions of like a beam uh, deposition or something on, on like a plate. And they were able to use sort of these algorithms plus a bit of machine learning for the, for the reconstruction, the image reconstruction, to self-calibrate the device, right? Because I guess the physics is a little bit more simple that they kind of what they they know their model is more or less perfect and then they can say that okay if if what we're seeing in the image is not what the model predicts, then we can on while exactly. while the beam is running, recalibrate everything to get the shape that yeah, we need that's really cool right So do you think that we will ever hit something like that for the tokamak device?
1: Of course you you want to minimize the number of you know manual manual tuning uh, coefficients you want to. Like have the have the estimate correct itself and correct its own model parameters. I think um, so. The, the problem is always that um, it's it's is not always transferable from one scenario to the next scenario. You know, it's it's a, it's a tricky. There are a lot of hidden parameters in when you are modeling a tokamak like discharge, which are not obvious to all learn you know by your by your observer for example a parameter which is often neglected is is how clean your walls are and and if your if your if i mean if you if your predictive model like was learning let's say based on previous discharges where you had clean walls and then all of a sudden the wall is more dirty you get more impurity influx you get more radiation and uh, you know, so the it's 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 hard to be uh, fully predictive, which is exactly why you need to learn on the fly, like you said, right? Why why you need mm-hmm. to ad- adapt these parameters in uh, during the simulation or during the real time reconstruction. And yeah, um, of course, the you can always get better in that. The question is, do we get good enough? in this so that we can achieve the goals that we need to achieve to make fusion work which is first avoid disruption so we need can we know the state of the plasma well enough in real time so that we can avoid it from going towards disruptive boundaries where we know if it goes there in parameter space we might lose control over the plasma so that's the real aim right we we don't need to get infinitely good we need to be good enough even for like not even for every scenario, right? Once we are going to a reactor, we can just have one, hopefully as boring as possible scenario where we achieve the aims that we need and where we can know the state of the plasma well enough that we can stay away from disruptive boundaries and um, technical limits where we know we can no longer, where we have no longer a handle over the plasma with, with the available actuators, things like this.
0: Yeah, that's also a very good point that you brought up, which is a big question for myself, because as you mentioned, once we move towards a real reactor technology, we'll probably have a standard scenario or standard plasma, right? That is just sort of, this is how we run our device. And in sort of my field where we're doing surrogate model generation, at the moment, we have to worry about a very large plasma parameter space, because mm-hmm. we want to capture all the different things that people might want to run their reactor in, um, some maybe even some exotic shapes or exotic scenarios, um, because we're still in that development phase towards defining the, the standard. Um, but well, do you think that at some point that when we hit the standard, actually a lot of the difficulties we have at the moment might disappear because we're kind of re- reduced our our operational space to something that's a bit more manageable.
1: Yeah, partial, partially, yes, I think so. I mean, current tokamaks are experimental devices where we want to test many different shapes of the plasma. How does the shape of the plasma affect the turbulence? We want to try, um, yeah, many different operating regimes because maybe we find uh I mean, and often it happens uh, that we find something interesting where we were not expecting it. Um, a fusion reactor will not be an experimental device. We will, um, um, like you said, we, I think in, in in that sense, yes, in the in in the steady state of of the machine when it's uh, at its maximal fusion power production during the discharge, uh, you will have a, a relatively uh, quiescent plasma where where things might be um, f- from the predict- prediction point of view easier than, than in current devices where you have to take into account all these fa- fancy scenarios. Now one more thing um, that you will still need to take into account is the transient phases. So you will still need to reach this operating point. So this is what we call the plasma ramp up. So it's called ramp up because it's the phase where we ramp up the plasma currents at the beginning. So we, we do we have a breakdown at the beginning um where where we create uh, the, the the plasma uh, at low temperatures and uh, and then we start rising the, the the current inside this plasma and start heating up um, this plasma column and this phase is um is um is often tricky to 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 optimize and and to 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 model um and uh is is nevertheless very important because you need to reach the the operating point where your performance is maximum, and um, it's not only that. So one thing is you want to make this phase as short as possible because you want to have as little as possible downtime. Downtime you want to you know go there to your maximum operating point and sit there, but another point is. Because the dynamics are nonlinear, you might have some bifurcations there. If you you know apply your actuators in a different order, you might end up at a different operating point. So there I think things are a bit complex, but also there you could say once you have a, an optimized scenario, you just keep repeating it. And the second dynamic phase is the ram down phase, which is the opposite end of the discharge. When you want to end the discharge, you ram down the plasma current. This is a phase that on on present tokamaks is often neglected because it's not so important um, whether or not the plasma disrupts during this phase because uh, on a present device you're not destroying every anything um, well maybe there's an exception with uh, the, the really uh, big devices but at least the, the the tokamaks I'm used to to work with there people don't have to care so much about this this ram down phase but it's actually um, a very complex phase, and it's not only about routine operation, because you can also um, imagine the need for for an emergency uh, shutdown. Uh, so, for example, uh, I can I can give an example. There is this this phenomenon called detachment. So, during operation, we need to radiate enough, like outside of like in the mantle, outside of the plasma, the scrape of layer, to so that the the, the field lines, when the field lines actually hit the magnet, the material surface, the, the the temperature of the plasma there is low enough. Now, basically, what can happen is that we lose the attachment, the detachment at some point, and then we get attached to the wall. Now, when this happens, we get these huge um, heat flux on our diverter plates on the material surface of the wall, and then we need to ram down the plasma as fast as possible. Now, this is not so easy as it might seem, because you have this um, very hot plasma with an enormous plasma current. And in as little time as possible, you have to get the energy down and get the plasma current down. Now, one thing is, because the plasma is so hot, current diffusion is extremely slow. This is related to the magnetic field lines that are basically frozen inside the plasma once the temperature is very hot. If a plasma is very hot, it's um, it's an extremely good conductor and and, um, and this makes that the diffusion of field lines and the diffusion of currents uh, is very slow. Now, I come back to something I mentioned before which is the position control, the control of the vertical position of the plasma. I said that you need enough uh, current by the edges of the plasma to maintain control over the vertical position of the plasma. Now, when you are ramping down a very hot plasma it it takes a lot of time to, you know, drag the current out of the center towards the edges of the plasma. And the the faster you ram down, the more your your current density becomes peaked and the harder it gets to control the vertical uh, position of the plasma. So that's an an, an example where um, optimization is very important and real-time estimation is very important. So that during the ram down, you know what's happening. Uh, because now this is one constraint that i mentioned but at the same time there are many other constraints playing playing at the same time you need to see that uh, for example you don't get a radiative collapse of the plasma that your heat that is radiated from the core does not exceed the 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 heating of uh, of the plasma things like this uh, this is extremely complex and uh, is something where you need a model that is good enough to optimize Um, the scenario and to uh, respond in real time and, and orchestrate the different control tasks.
0: Yeah, that's very, very interesting. So basically, what you're saying is that if in these, let's just say, transient scenarios, that if you don't do it properly, you can Actually, make the situation worse, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So, in in trying to save the, the 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 reactor, you might end up destroying the reactor because you did things in the wrong order.
1: And that's why you need a model that's good enough so you can actually know, you know, if you trigger these nonlinear dynamics, where does it go? Does it bring me uh, towards a more stable situation, or does it? So that's um, yeah. I think these are phases where where models are are really important and where we need to, even if on present devices, maybe we don't, it's not so important. We can do the trial and error and et cetera. We need to make sure that the models we use are at least good enough to do this kind of exercises on, on the tokamaks we have now. So we have some confidence in these models. And so we know it can be done so that when uh, in the future we start operating these, these bigger tokamaks, we are ready with the tools that are that are needed to to optimize and control them
0: yeah that's that that's you're right i think because i've i've heard many people say that the world of control and the world of plasma modeling like physics modeling are, are quite separate have been in the past mm-hmm. quite separated um because sort of the control was I don't want to say easier, but it, for the smaller machines, it was it was less catastrophic if you did yeah, it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in that way, they they never they just said, "Ah, okay, no matter what happens, we can always just adjust the controller gains, and then it works." Yeah. Um, but as as you mentioned <laughs> rightly, that as things get more complex and the consequences get more uh, intense, then we have to bring these two worlds closer and closer together um, in order to get the right response hopefully yeah, the first time. Um, <laughs>
1: that, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's from, from the first time Yeah, uh, with, with a, as little uh, a learning curve as possible. Yep, yeah, that's... Um...
0: All right. So, I mean, there's a fantastic conversation, uh, but I do want to slowly ramp down to use your terminology. <laughs> um, But I... So, let's just end on this note. So, all of this stuff you mentioned is important for big machines such as Eater, but maybe we can sort of go through in a more systematic manner like what does this mean for ether like why is it so important for ether
1: yeah so I can mention a a few different points so one of them I, I have already mentioned a few times so we need to minimize the number of disruptions we can not tolerate a large number of cases where you know the plasma with its full thermal energy it's full magnetic energy bumps into the wall so we need to get our act together and, and be able to, from the first time, like know um, what the plasma is doing and how we are going to terminate it, things like this. Second point is um, ITER, OK, ITER is still an experimental device, but future reactors, they are not experimental devices. They are um, envisioned to be power plants, right? And so they will have much. Less uh, diagnostics compared to to uh, present devices. One one actually um, one other reason for this is because they will need to maximize tritium breeding. So you will need to cover your your the wall of your um, of your vacuum vessel with um, lithium blankets so that you irradiate uh, the, this lithium with uh, the high energy neutrons from from the plasma, which turn the the lithium into tritium, which is fuel you need for for your fusion uh, reactions. And so you will not be able to have many diagnostics um, around the the plasma, at least much less than in present devices. And this is exactly why these um, estimation techniques, where you combine scarce diagnostics with a model of the plasma, to get a, an observed state, an optimal observed state of, of, of what's happening in the tokamak is very important um, and more important even on future devices than uh, on present devices. And then I think the, the last point is just the fact that you will need to apply many different control tasks at the same time. So now on um, experimental devices, you can Study one specific control task. You know, you choose a designated fraction of your discharge where you are going to study uh, power exhaust control or NTM, like this uh, tiering mode control or whatever. On a reactor, you will need to do all of that at the same time, and um, I think for this, it 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 will be important that the um, the controller that is supervising all of this of where are we allocating our actuators. Um, this controller will need to be aware of where in operation space are we, and what happens if we move um, in in this or in that direction. Um, our, our actuators. Where will this bring us? And so, I think if if you bring these aspects together, it it becomes very clear that uh, control. On future devices will be very challenging, but also very interesting, and will be need to be model aware, um, both for the real-time control and for the optimization in between discharges of of like, um, yeah, to to see how do we need to change things to to um, to optimize in, in in the next discharge. Uh, But that's that's still more something you would do on a a device like Ether, of course, once you have a reactor, like we said before, hopefully you just have one scenario and you keep uh, repeating it, I guess.
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah. No, I think, actually, I just want to have an an extra question since you just brought it up, is that, um, as you mentioned, the future reactor will not have that many diagnostics in it for various reasons. Um, But do you think even that, these models or this environment of models that you're that are put it, being put together for this purpose can be used to help optimize which diagnostics are kept, like which ones are absolutely necessary.
1: I think that's a, a very interesting question. So, um, I think based on on the on the state estimators that we make, uh, I think we can um, see how much information a certain diagnostic adds on the table, like how much uh, it, it helps us to reduce. Because in the end, for example, when you use this Kalman filter, you don't only solve for the state of the plasma, but you also solve for the, um, the uncertainty on this state. And you can try turning on different diagnostics and see how much does that diagnostic help me to reduce the uncertainty on my estimated quantity. And of course, in, in an environment where, where your diagnostics are scarce, this is probably an exercise you will want to do. Like, how can I get the maximum out of the few diagnostics that I can install? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very good point.
0: Okay, super cool. And so I think with that, uh, Simon, thanks for joining the podcast. Um was my pleasure. I, yeah, was, I, I learned a lot. A lot and honestly, I I could... I could... I could talk about this for much longer, but I think that we should wrap it up for sure. And uh, so, yeah, to all our listeners out there, um, thanks for joining again on this podcast. I hope you learned something new. There's a wide world out there in terms of both models and algorithms to play with. And uh, it's a brand new future, as they say. So until next time, see you. Bye.